Pastor with no answers. Listeners, you're back again to listen to the pastor that keeps telling you he doesn't have the answers, but you keep coming back. Why do you keep coming back? I have a quote from John D. Croson. It could be Croson. I never heard of the guy. I probably could have done some research to figure out how to say his last name, but I gave you two options. This quote says, My point, once again, is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we were dumb enough to take them literally. Such a good quote giving us a basis for this upcoming conversation that is going to give my big brother Jared, the editor and the, did I just say editor, the editor of these podcast episodes. He's our executive producer and he's going to get a headache on this one and I'm going to get some awesome texts from him being like, I cannot understand why they're saying what they're saying and obviously always some very good critical pushback. You know, I think a lot of conservative thinkers would listen to these guys and just think, man, they have lost their damn theological minds. And I'm at a place where I just don't see how us as finite creatures searching the infinite I, we're just all, we're gonna be all over the map. Our denominations not proof of that. Representing groups of people that see things differently. We're all trying to figure it out. We're all trying to make sense. But Jared, I will say some of it. I'm on your side on this one. Some of them I am. But Mason and Heath, very awesome, pleasant guys. Such a great conversation. We cover so much, and I am psyched for you to hear this one. Last year, around this time, Blast from the Past, Cat Armas came on to talk abuelita theology. If you speak Spanish, you probably are making fun of how I said that. And you know that I just tried to say grandma theology. Just an awesome, oh my gosh, such an awesome concept. We listen to all these biblical scholars, some of them having sex with massage therapist Robbie Zacharias. Rest in peace. And just the concept of the woman of color that cleaned hotels for a living day in and day out, all that time drawing closer and closer to Jesus. And we have missed out on their theology and their thoughts and their innermost peace that they've gained through the years. Now, obviously, it's not super practical. How are we going to learn from them? We don't know them, and maybe we should. (laughs) How cool would it be if we could tap into the brain of people that are not like us, that lived a completely different lifestyle and have grown closer to God in ways that we cannot even imagine. But that is episode 234, Diminished Heroic Women of Faith with Kat Armas. I really like Kat a lot. I don't know if we've announced Travis Wolf. I think we have, but just to be doubly sure, he is our newest patron, and what a badass name, Travis Wolf. If you want to join our patrons, it's in the show notes, and we give money to Donor C. 
every single month. There's opportunities around the world to help people. You can go to DonorC.com forward slash PWNA helps. If you want to contribute to DonorC without joining the patrons, if you do join the patrons, unless you tell me otherwise, half of what you give me will go to the monthly opportunity. Thank you so much, patrons. Thank you, Travis Wolf. Before we get to our conversation, I do want to tell you some stories about my mom. Since Mother's Day was this weekend, I'm actually recording this episode on a Friday. So Mother's Day is in two days. But if you're listening on a Monday, it was yesterday. I don't know why I had to tell you all that information. I think you know the days of the week. But I'll tell you some stories. There was one time when I was real little. We're all getting ready for the beach. We're all getting the cooler ready, grabbing the towels. Me and my brother probably getting the little buckets and the little shovels so we can have fun. And my mom, she had her top completely on, on, just not completely fastened. So the little straps, the little strings were just still dangling as her upper body was completely covered. And yet me, the pesty little brother, the pesty baby of the family needed to get her attention. And so I just decided, wow, those those dangling strings are just available. Let me grab one and just yank on it to get her attention. Well, as I did that, I yanked her top off. My mom is extremely modest. And in my little boy memory, I remember her basically kind of screaming and running to the back of the house, petrified that her two little boys saw her too little. Or (laughs) I'm not going to comment on the size. (laughs) Didn't mean to say that at all. But anyway, whatever. Moving on. I remember the first time I made my mom cry. I'm sure I made her cry as a little kid, probably more of a sympathetic heart, softened heart of a mom crying for her little boy if I'm in pain or something like that. But this is the first time I made her cry as an asshole, as me being an asshole. We were on the way to Coastal Carolina Fair. She was taking me. She was dropping me off. And I remember I was upset about something. I had my hand resting on the armrest. And a consoling mother, she put her hand on top of mine and I yanked it from under it. I don't know what was up with all of my adolescent hormones, but for some reason, her hand on my hand was not welcomed. And I looked up and my mom had tears coming down her eyes. It broke her heart. Ah, I don't like that memory, but I do love this one. So my brother and I and some friends are playing in the garage. We're playing with G.I. Joe figures. My mom is changing laundry. Well, this guy named Billy, he came back there in the garage and We all think that we saw him put our G.I. Joe figure, Junkyard Dog, into his pocket. And then he said, I got to go. My mom wants me home. Very conveniently, Billy. And so he walks out of the garage. My mom looks at us and says, did you see what I saw? And we all are shaking our head. Yes, I think we did. And so she goes out there, Billy halfway out of our yard. She says, Billy! And I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating with how she said it. She said, Billy! He turned around. She said, what's in your pocket? My mom ain't playing around. He goes to his pocket, pulls everything out. That G.I. Joe figure isn't there. What does my mom say? I know you have more than one pocket. As she points to a second pocket. He goes into that second pocket and you guessed it. He pulled out G.I. Joe figure, junkyard dog, embarrassed. He's busted. He gives it back and then he goes home. My mom won. Billy zero. And here's the funny part of the story. I took my cats to the vet. Oh gosh, seven years ago. And guess who was our doctor? 
Yes, sir. It was Dr. G.I. Joe Junkyard Dog Thieving Son of a Billy. It was Dr. Billy. And I didn't have the heart to say, do you remember that day when you stole from me? I don't even think he knew who I was. (laughs) But man, in 2019, when I was at my worst, my mom showed just what a mother is made of. Not only seeing her son suffer immense pain, but with me every single second. Once again, it's like she went back in time to the season where she sacrificed everything for her little boys and she was back at it again. A good friend of mine, Ryan Amick, lost his mom about two years ago and I'll never forget what he said. It was something along the lines of when he lost his mom, he lost the one person that had the purest unconditional love that you could possibly have for another being and that's what a mom is. All that being said, this is the Pastor Joey coming out in me. I know everybody didn't have a good mom, so I hate that for you. But for those of you that did, you know what the hell I'm talking about. So happy Mother's Day yesterday. Give your moms a hug. Enjoy this episode. Righty, righty, righty. We got we got the pastor with no answers, and we've got three straight white males. Actually, Heath, I don't know. Are you straight? I didn't. I, I didn't even ask. Are you a straight white male? Uh, you, you're you're correct. I was All gonna right, say you don't so, want to out him right now. This is not a good right, place to out Heath. potentially awkward. Yes, right. Yeah. Heath is like I actually need to talk to my wife first. There's a lot of things <laughs> that need to be done. <laughs> but Heath, I can't even remember who 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 told me about you. Was it is it a a friend of yours that listens to Pastor with No Answers? I don't remember. Yeah, it, it's as a sister-in-law of mine who gotcha. uh, yeah, had been listening to you and uh, said that some of the things I've been talking about resonated with the kinds of things y'all talk about on your on your show. So, yeah. Yeah. She, she put me in touch with you. Awesome. Yeah, and I and I told Mason, Mason, it's Meninga, right? Meninga. Did I say that right? What? Meninga. Meninga. Yes. So I had the stress on the wrong Yeah, syllable. everybody no, you're, you're like typical mispronunciation, so don't feel like you're the only one. I thought you were going to say something like typical Southerner or some or no, some not slide. A typical, that's to just my anybody wherever. That's how they they <laughs> just put the stress on the wrong syllable, which is totally fine. <laughs> so Heath, I will yeah. tell you that what really got me excited to talk to, and and there's always a risk, and I can tell that the risk is no is, there's no longer a risk because I see you. We've 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 chit chatted a little bit. There's always a risk though, that if I don't know a person, they're going to come on the show and like be really boring and dull. And I can already tell that you're an engaging guy and this is going to be great, but it's always a risk. Um, Uh, I feel feel a lot of pressure now to be entertaining. (laughs) No, I'm telling you, you've, I, I, I can spot it from a mile away. (laughs) But 
So what really got me interested about you is this concept of the potential of God not being violent, God Mm. never being violent. Mm. And obviously that plays into how people read the Bible and that sort of thing. But let me tell both of y'all, let me start here. So I used to think that you could systematize theology and I literally had all the answers and my wife thought that I had all the answers kind of, but she would Mm. refer people to me and say, well, Joey can explain that to you. And gosh, I look back and I'm like, how dare I? But here's how I had everything fitting perfectly together when it came to penal substitution is when a human being sins against an eternal God, that is an eternal sin that is punishable by eternal death. Like it's not me sinning against Mason, calling him something and and talking behind his back. It's me sinning against eternal God. And that punishment is eternal hell. And that's why God had to come and basically represent humanity, become our replacement, dying on the cross, all that sort of thing. Not to think, though, in my mind, it started to like really bug me. I was like, well, wait a second. If our sin merits eternal burning in a fiery lake, then... Isn't that what Jesus is supposed to do for us, though? If he's truly standing in our place, it seems like Jesus would then need to go to hell forever and ever and ever, so we wouldn't. But I I want to let, just start right here, and I tell you what, since, Heath, you're kind of our, our guest, Mason, how do you see—if I just came out and said, hey, why did Jesus die, what would you say, just for some context of, of, of what Mason thinks? Just That's just a lighthearted, surfacey question, man. You know, why did Jesus die? Well, <laughs> last year during Good Friday, I got death threats because I had tweeted that Jesus didn't die because of your sins. Jesus died because he was a poor brown revolutionary that was killed oh, by the Roman Empire. And people did not like me saying that. And I ended up getting, it like sort of went semi-viral and people were giving me death threats and it made the rounds. Death threats, please. Yes. When you say that, do you really mean that? Like people who are like, like I, you need to be killed for saying something like this. And I, I, it's kind of shocking that they didn't find my address. It was, no, it was, it was pretty intense. I ended up getting my Twitter account got restricted for a little while because there was so much going on with it. It was, yeah, it was intense and it happened last year. Um, so anyway, but that would be my answer. I, why Jesus was that traumatic or were you able to just kind of like, I mean, it's like be a passive observer of all of that or did it suck you in and and traumatize you a bit? I wouldn't say it traumatized me, but I at least got like a sense of like, Oh, what I say on here really matters. So I need to be, you know, careful of like how I say things and word things and who I'm connected to and, everything like that but um but yeah in terms of the the question why did jesus die that's how i answer it is that jesus died because he was a poor brown revolutionary who was killed by the roman empire so was it needed in any way so this is where a lot of people don't like me for is that i don't think that there is like a better, I think there are atonement theories that are better, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so penal substitution isn't the only atonement theory out there. Sure, I think there are atonement theories that are better. um, Like the Rene Girard uh, theory, I think is interesting, but I ultimately kind of go more of the sort of Peter Rollins route. If people know who Peter Rollins is, Peter Rollins is like, I don't think that there should be a better atonement theory. I should think that I think that there should be no atonement theory. And I kind of am in that vein of, I don't think we need to think about the cross as any sort of atonement. 
um, whether yeah. it's a better one or a worse one. I just don't think we need any sort of atonement theory. So, and so, yeah. just for more con more context before we let Heath in here, Heath, what, are you cool with just listening to us for an hour, and uh, <laughs> we'll we'll put your name in the show notes? <laughs> yeah, that's that would be much easier, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but Mason, so just for more context, was was Jesus a representative of God? Was he an anointed messenger? Was he God in the flesh? Like, what's your theology? There? Yeah. So I definitely think that Jesus was God incarnate. I really yeah. do take that seriously. So where people are like, well, where, when did, when did salvation happen? If salvation didn't happen at the cross, if God didn't atone Jesus on the cross for salvation, then when, when did salvation occur? And that's where my argument would be that, that salvation happened when incarn the incarnation happened. So I place gotcha. salvation at the incarnation and that God becoming flesh is such a salvific event. I think that's so salvific. And that the cross is, is this kind of political revolutionary event where someone was killed, but I don't want to place any sort of salvation around it. And I can talk more about why that is. And I'm, I'll, yeah. you know, I'm super interested in hearing what Heath has to say, you know, especially knowing your position with nonviolence. I'm really curious about that. But uh, anyway, that's kind of where I'm at on that. Well, Mason, I can already tell if I hang out with you a little bit more, my vocabulary is going to expand greatly. <laughs> Salvific, I didn't even know was a word, but now I do, and I'm going to try to Well, if you need me smart. to like dial back, I can always do that too. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll be the first one to, like I was able to use my context clues to figure out what that word meant, but if I can't use my context clues, I'll stop you and Great. say, what did you just mean by that? What's that word mean? All right, so Heath. Yeah. Take what Mason just said, and obviously, I think we all understand penal substitution is probably what most evangelical fundamentalists ascribe to. Like, I remember watching The Passion mm -hmm. of Christ and being like, shit, like, I did that. Like, I, that's because of me. And and that sort of acceptance of, of blame that I put Jesus on the cross. I know one thing that was supposed to be super, super, super heartwarming growing up as an evangelical kid is if you were the only one on this earth, Jesus would have done that for you. And now I'm just like, oh, my gosh, that would have been horrible. Like if I was the only one on earth and Jesus had to do that for me. But Heath, where, where are you at with a, atonement? Why did Jesus have yeah. to die? Let's just jump right in, my man. Sure. You know, as you were saying that, I had a flashback to... Like one of my earliest experiences as a pastor, I was in the church office and there was like a traditional painting uh, of Jesus on the cross, like in the background. It wasn't mine. It was already there. And one time a, a mom came in with her son. He was probably five, six years old, something yeah. like that. And they were coming in to get some kind of financial assistance, if I remember correctly. And the little boy looks at this painting and says, you know, who's that? And the mom says, that's Jesus. And he, he said, why is he there? And she said, well, you put him there. And I wanted to like reach out and go, no, no, like right. this, you're, you're horrible. This is horrible. Don't say that. You know? Right. It, it, and it, it really, you know, the fact that kids are taught that I can't imagine, I didn't grow up with that sort of teaching. I didn't grow up in an uh, evangelical type environment. So I'm very familiar with penal substitution, but it's never been at the core of my theology. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I probably haven't had the same internal struggles with it that a lot of people have. Um, but I've certainly struggled with it a lot. I, I think what Mason said was really interesting in terms of like, so Mason, you gave a very like historical response to why did Jesus right. die, right? He's this, he's in some ways this religious political revolutionary who tries to get, um, you know, change a lot of things and the Roman empire tries to squash it. And then 
you know, for me, I think it's, it's interesting to try to bring the historical response and the theological responses together somehow. Mm -hmm. And like the historical response you gave, like, you know, is I think spot on, it doesn't at all mesh well with like penal substitution. Like they seem like they're in different worlds altogether. Uh, and so for me, I've tried to wrestle a lot with like, how can we give a theological account of atonement that takes very seriously the historical context in which Jesus died? And so I, I'm not going to pretend to have like a fully worked out formula, but that's the way I've tried to struggle with it, trying to bring the theological, the historical together. Um, all right. Does that make sense that way of putting it? Yeah, I think I think so. And I, I would I would like to hear what the historical context was. And 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 you guys are are are. I've got a master's in divinity, but I I also re, I, y'all you guys are way more studied. Do we have a good guess for? I'm I'm talking uh, uh, around Paul's life, like. If if you were to ask Paul, or if you were to ask John, or if you were to ask Mary Magdalene, like why? Hey, why did why did your teacher have to die? Like why why did Jesus have to die? What what would those people say that that were living within a hundred years of it happening? It's hard to respond to that. I think I think you know in Paul's letters, for example, you find a variety of images and metaphors for trying to make sense of the atonement and. And in my opinion, I don't think you find a worked out theory of atonement in the New Testament, right. uh, much much less a specific one like penal substitution. I think you have these different images and metaphors uh, that in some way connote a sense of being set free, a sense of being liberated. Um, but I don't think there were worked out, out theories. I, I, I'll tell you my best guess at how I feel like they, uh, the earliest followers understood this. And for me, it's it's not just that Jesus died on a cross that I think is the most um, salvific thing about it. I think it's the fact of how he died in such a uh, forgiving and loving way. Like, I think it's really significant that he forgave his enemies as he's being murdered. I think that if Jesus had died in a different way, like calling down curses on his enemies, which was a, um, you may be familiar with the, um, you know, Roman Catholics have uh, books in the Old Testament, the Maccabees. Uh, which talk about some uh, political revolutionaries in the centuries before Jesus. And when they would die, they would die, you know, calling down curses on their enemies. And that was, uh, you know, kind of seen as, you know, the, the way to, the way, the best way to die, if you will, calling down God's curses on your enemies. And Jesus doesn't do that. He forgives his enemies. Uh, he prays for their forgiveness. I think, you know, seeing Jesus dying, the most horrible death one could imagine with forgiveness on his lips as he's dying. For me, that reveals the heart of God. That's what, that's where, in my sense, uh, where the historical and the theological come together, that here we see a person who would, is so committed to the way of love that he's willing to be crucified by following that way of love and to do it all the way to the end. Uh, and so for me, it's the, the cross is not about like changing God's heart from being wrathful to being loving. For me, it reveals the love of God that will like take on the worst human beings can do and still offer back forgiving love. Um, and so that's, that, that's how I try to wrestle with it. And that's how I, that's how I think, try to yeah. bring historical and theological together. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not being uh, trippy. I'm not making fun of evangelicals, but is there, is there power in the blood? Like, is there, is there like a, a needed without it? 
we're all SOL. Like we're, does that make sense? Like, like if, if Jesus, so if Jesus continued to submit to, uh, you know, his persecutors, but it never ended in death and he, and he grew to be an an older man and and died at an old age, does that Mm -hmm. change things for us? I'm curious what both of y'all would think about that. Yeah, sure. Mason, I kind of gave a long response to the next one. Do you want to go first on no, that? No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I guess just to be in a, answer it in a straightforward way is, no, I don't think there's any sort of necessity in the blood, like appeasing the wrath of God. I think that God has always been forgiving. I, I don't think that the cross changed God's heart in any way. Um, I, I think that, you know, and this stuff is really complicated, and I realize scholars disagree about this stuff, but I'm not convinced penal substitution is really taught at all in the New Testament. I, I think that what has largely happened is we've taken sacrificial metaphors and then interpreted them through the lens of retributive justice. And we've gotten the categories all mixed up. Ancient sacrifices, especially in ancient Israel, didn't work on like a retributive justice context. It wasn't the, and this is often, and this is a point of dispute because a lot of uh, evangelical type preachers will basically say, we well, the animals were kind of like a stand in, so to speak, like God's bloodthirsty. And, you know, the, the animals, we keep killing the animals for God. And that kind of keeps God's anger at bay until finally he can kill his own son and take out all the anger. And, you know, as I'm saying that out loud, that just sounds so monstrous. It just sounds so illogical. Um, but I, I find no basis in Leviticus or the old Testament for the idea that the animals were like a substitute, uh, death. You know, I, I think that it's the blood that was shed, uh, you know, in the ancient context was thought about as having like cleansing properties of some kind, that it can wash away sin, that it can purify. But, you know, when you read those texts carefully, they, they don't fit into a penal substitution or retributive framework very easily because there's this idea of like you sprinkle the blood on the altar and it purifies the sanctuary of sin. Like, I don't quite know what that means. I mean, that's really hard for me to wrap my mind around exactly how they thought about it. But that kind of language doesn't fit within retribution. Like it wasn't about the animal dying so that I don't have to. Um, as best I can tell, there's, I can't remember the exact verse. But I think it's Leviticus 17 where it talks about uh, that the blood makes atonement because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And in, in ancient Israelite thinking, the, the idea was that God's spirit, God's nephesh was in the blood of all mammals. And so the blood represented the life of God, the breath of God more than anything else. And so I think the blood was considered important for them because in some way it was a tangible way of seeing the spirit of God interacting with human sin or washing away human sin. It's almost like a spiritual detergent in a way in ancient thinking. Now, again, to to modern ears, this really makes no sense. This this really makes no sense in terms of our categories. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why we jumped in with retributive models uh, of, and tried to make sense of ancient sacrificial categories uh, through modern means. And so, I don't know, what do y'all think about that? Well, it's interesting that you point that out about sort of the the retributive or even like restorative justice frameworks that are in it. And the reason why I I point that out is I just a couple weeks ago had a conversation with a person named Hannah Bowman. And Hannah Bowman uh, runs the Center for Christian Abolition. 
So she's an abolitionist. And for people who know what abolition is, it's for people who think that we shouldn't have prisons anymore. A lot of them don't think we should have police, that we should have different ways to keep our community safe and have different ways to hold people accountable for things that they do. And one of the things that she points out is one of the things that she's really interested in is how we think about Jesus's death and what was atoned for on the cross and how then we go out and act and and participate in the world uh, that also really believes that that was true. So if God really truly atoned or Jesus on the cross atoned for humanity's sins, then how we treat other people in the world, even for people who are in prison, that really matters. Um, And so I do really, you know, if there's any reason for me to believe in atonement, again, I don't, but if there is any reason for me to believe in any sort of atonement, it's because I do really appreciate someone like Hannah, who is talking about how the restorative justice piece that's a part of like her understanding of atonement and how you were describing it, Heath, I think is a really compelling way to think about it because of how it really forces us to treat even the people that we don't think really deserve justice in the world, people who are in prison. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring up that distinction. It, for me, actually, thinking about atonement, trying, rethinking hell, for me, this all began for me when I was a graduate student um, in a philosophy program and wrestling with the ethics of capital punishment. And Mm. in doing that, I started reading a lot about restorative justice and criticisms of retributive justice. And up until that time, uh, I didn't even know what those terms meant. You know, retributive justice is basically the idea that when you do something wrong, there's like just a certain punishment you deserve. And if you get that punishment, then it like balances the scales, right? So if you steal something, you spend X amount of time in prison and somehow that's supposed to like make up. Like an eye for an eye kind of model. Yeah, that's a, yeah exactly an eye for an eye kind of model. But with restorative justice, it, it's more personal. So in restorative justice, the idea would be if you steal something from someone, that you you know you're you're um, encouraged to make amends to that person in particular in, as much as you can, right? Realizing the impact it had on them, apologizing. You know, it's more personal. Uh, it's actually about trying to restore broken relationships, not about balancing scales. And so, you know my readings and that really got me to thinking about how retributive justice, that idea has really permeated Western theology so much. And I think there's been this like mutually interactive relationship between theology and our ethics of, you know, of prisons and punishment and things like that. And I think that penal substitution really strongly feeds into the strong evangelical American support for things like capital punishment um, because there's this very strong retributive justice uh, in mind. And so, yeah, I think those distinctions are very relevant. So I I think that Christians as a whole, especially in the last 300 years with how we've been taught to read the Bible, we have any and every excuse to have believed or to still believe in a violent, wrath, wrathful God. I mean, from, from the flood to the Red Sea swallowing up the Egyptians to the the law and what that mandated all the way to Ananias and Sapphira. My gosh, they just kept a little bit of money for themselves and they get struck down. Now, I have different yeah. contexts for all of that. You know, I'm not even so sure about some of the stories that we've just accepted as actually have happened. So, but for sure there needs to be a different like if 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 you say Heath that God 
has never been violent, is not violent, never will be violent, then there's got to be a different way of reading the Bible. And I know this is, this is it's tough to have a snapshot answer to this, but maybe what we should do is just take the flood, the law, and like, let's take these, let's take these three, the flood, the, the law and actually what it said and, you know, stone the adulteress and all that stuff. And then let's look Uh at Ananias and Sapphira. So three Mm. examples. Oh, and, and not to mention, Hey, go slaughter all the women and children. Um, command that that we read that was apparently from god so let's take the flood do you guys believe that there was a literal flood that there was a guy named noah and built an ark and where are you guys at with that story completely allegorical or really happened and if so god was wrathful i mean killed everybody like i i think that there is mythology in the bible uh i, I think that especially these early stories in genesis these Genesis, these prehistoric, especially like Genesis 1 through 11, I, I don't think we should start with the assumption that these are stories conveying literal historical truths. I don't think we should start with that assumption, because if we start with that assumption, then people who say, well, this is metaphorical or mythical, we're seen as somehow like deviating from what it's supposed to be or what it was intended to be. And I think it's a, a really fair you know, question to ask of, well, what kind of literature was this intended to be in the first place? Like, what if the literalists are taking something that seems to be obviously myth and turning it into something else, right? Like, so when you have like the story of Adam and Eve and the talking snake, like if you read a story about a talking snake in any other book in the world besides the Bible, you're going to assume this is a myth of some mm-hmm, kind, yeah. right? And so I think when we go to the Bible, what I've encountered a lot with with evangelicals is this starting assumption that unless you have like a clear footnote that says otherwise, take it historically. And I just don't see that. I just don't see why. I mean, I think we need to pay close attention to what kind of literature it actually is. I must do just the opposite. And, I just assume it's almost myth of some sort, unless otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're probably in the minority in that, uh, in that assumption. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like with things like the flood, I mean, you, know, you can compare these to all sorts of other flood myths that are very prominent in the ancient world. And you can try to figure out like, What's the theological message, you know, contained in it? You know, it's, it's kind of, and I, I'm a little uh, fuzzy on some of my comparisons here, but like one, one of the most prominent Babylonian myths, you know, talked about the gods sending a flood because the human beings got too noisy, like they were annoyed with them. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe it was in Numa Elish, or I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, like there's an interesting point made in that flood story about like, you know, God's heart was broken over violence in the world. Right. And of course there's a real paradox there that God tries to fix it with more violence. But I think what's interesting about that story is like, it doesn't work. Like God wiping almost everyone out doesn't work. Like there's now there's still violence on the earth. And so one way you could read that story is that showing that like violence, even when it's from a God, doesn't work mm. like violence doesn't stop violence it just keeps going uh and so yeah i guess that that's my initial response to I, the, the I, that, that's that's so true like I, I i've thought that before it's like okay wait a second you 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 hit the reset button by sending this monstrous flood and that didn't work i mean it literally sounds like god it, it makes god sound like 
the the evil kid on Toy Story One who just sets <laughs> toys on fire and just does all sorts of messed uh-huh. up stuff, you know. But yeah. so now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. I mm. I did the King James just so I could say ass. Yeah. So. Nice. i I, i'm at a place now to where i'm like i don't i don't think god asked them to do Mm -hmm. that i I just don't think they were hearing from god but then where my mind goes is man like why didn't god like if if god is nonviolent and god is universally loving why did he let stuff like this even be in the Bible, mm-hmm. which clearly portrays a different yeah. God? Can I say something? Yeah. And, 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 and then my next thought is, well, from an eternal perspective, I'm only here for a second anyway. So right. it, I, uni- universal love for, for all people fixes everything in my mind. It's just like, th- you know, it doesn't matter what we believe or how off we are. We're here for a split second and we'll see sooner or later just how things work. But I'm would is that where you would fall, Mason? Is God didn't tell him to do that? Yeah. So I, I think it's really important to really understand like who were the people that were writing these scriptures. They weren't necessarily people who were getting this like direct word from God, but they were going about the world, experiencing their world, and then trying to figure out like how does God, how is God involved in this? And sometimes in our scriptures, we see people who thought that God was being violent and wrathful because maybe they were wronged, right? And so I think it's really important to understand that the people who are writing these scriptures, who are telling these scriptures, were people very similar to us, who are going about experiencing the world, who have been hurt, who have been loved, who have been experiencing God, and they're just trying to figure their way out uh, in, in this world, right? They're just figuring it out as they go, just like us. And so I think it's really important to understand that that's who are the people that we're reading these scriptures from. That's who they, they, they were like. So if that's the case, then I don't think we necessarily have to believe that God was literally violent in those moments, that God was giving them a literal command that that they should be killing women and, and children and, and infants. So first off, I, I think that's really important. Did they think God was saying that? Yeah, I think did, I think did, that might there be actually people that thought that. Yeah, may, may, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps maybe they thought that that would, um, you know, right the wrong that they had experienced or something. Yeah, may, maybe they thought that that's what God had said. But I don't necessarily think that we have to believe that God literally said that um, if we understand that these people were similar to us and that they were finite and they were experiencing God in similar ways. I mean, there's times where I see something happen in the world and I really wish God would just smite those people and you know take them off the face of the earth. There are times where I really feel like I wish God would do that. Um, and if I wrote that down and then, you know, 2000 years later realized, well, wow, I didn't realize that this would end up becoming scripture. You know, sometimes that, that might happen. Um, so with that said, and then you had, uh, you had a question about, well, then why, even if we don't believe that God literally gave that command, why did God let that happen? 
this is where I kind of, you know, my theological tradition comes in and I'm a part of a world called process theology. And one of the things that uh, is notable about process theology is that we don't believe that God is omnipotent, which means that we don't believe that God is all powerful. So God can't just unilaterally do whatever God wants in the world. And so open theology sort. Yeah, similar. It's I would say it's like open theology, but on steroids. Um, And so I really don't believe God can actually stop some of those things from happening in the world. Um, Now, certainly there's a lot of Christians out there who really believe that, you know, God can and hasn't or whatever. But I think the best way to wrestle with that is believing that God actually can't do um, do that all powerful unilateral move to, you know, stop violence or whatever. So but, you know, lots of other Christians have different perspectives on that. Yeah. Yeah. Why why mess with the Bible at all? Mm. I, I I know why I still feel connected to the Bible, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody else's journey. Why do we mess with the Bible when it's just regular folks? Like, why wasn't the Bible written in 1000 AD with those people? What What makes the Bible special at all, especially if it's inspired by a God who doesn't even seem to be in control of stuff in the first place. Like, do you guys elevate the Bible at a higher distinction than any other book? How would you describe your relationship with the Bible, Heath? Yeah, it I certainly resonate with the question of why bother with the Bible, because I've certainly gone through periods where I've thought maybe we, maybe I shouldn't bother with it anymore. Like there's so, there's so much in there that I feel like is so uh, harmful and destructive and mm-hmm. false that it has been tempting at times just to think maybe it would be better just to have a spirituality that just kind of puts all that to the side. Um, wow, well, that doesn't sound like a pastor, Mister Heath. <laughs> I'm a fellow yeah. pastor, so I'm I'm totally tripping right now. Go ahead. Yeah, no, well, just no, it, it it does, and you're right. And as pastors, we can I think sometimes feel pressure to pretend to be more confident than we are yep. and pretend to be more certain, pretend to be more certain than we are. I'll tell you that the, the church that I'm at now is a wonderful group of people I love very much. And they've helped me tremendously in being uh, feeling free to share doubts and questions. Mm-hmm. And that, I feel like that really connects with people because at the end of the day, I mean, most people that are listening to us have the same sorts of questions we do. They just usually have never felt free to ask them. You know, like I suspect most people, when they read a story about a God commanding genocide, like they have some moral compunctions about it. Like they, they think, well, that doesn't sound right. You know, but they just probably, in, you know, in the quietness of their own minds, just think, well, it's in the Bible. It's got to be true. And so I think there can be a lot of value in church leaders being more honest about struggles of various kinds, especially these theological struggles. Totally agree. Um, um, and so, but to your question about why, why bother with it, um, my, my understanding of God, my spirituality continues to be very centered on Christ. And that's why I continue to take the Bible. Like I, I find life in Christ. Like I find that as I'm following Christ, that life seems fuller and richer. And not that, it, not, not that it like makes all my problems go away. In some ways it gives me more problems, but like it, I, it just I, it feels very meaningful to me. And so because Jesus feels very meaningful to me, you know, the gospels are the main ways we know about his life. I feel like the, the old Testament's his 
you know, it's a story of his people, it's about the backstory, and then the rest of the New Testament's a lot of reflection of his earliest followers. So for me, it comes down to it's important because Christ is important to me. And so I do my best to, like, the Bible isn't the most important thing to me in terms of faith. It's Christ and his life and teachings and death and resurrection. And so for me, the Bible is secondary, but it's the primary witness to Christ. And so when I read the Bible, I do so with a sense of this is a very human book. And, um, you know, we were t- it seems like kind of underneath a lot of what we're talking about is like ideas about inspiration of the Bible. And, um, you know, um, that term inspiration, I feel like has been, there's so much been thrown into that that's not there. Like, it's this one little passage in Second Timothy where Paul talks about the scriptures being inspired. And from that, people have spun all sorts of theories about it's perfectly dictated, it's inerrant, words never used in the Bible itself. And so I can't remember who pointed this out. This is not original with me. I, I can't remember where I read it, but someone once pointed out that the word that Paul uses, theonoustos, this God breathes, um, that that's a, a, a term that Paul coined. There's no other examples of that hmm. term being used before Paul used it, the idea of scriptures being God breathed. And someone has pointed out that it was likely the story in Genesis 2, I think it's in verse 7, when it says God breathed life into the human being. That's the only other example of like God breathing out in the scriptures. And so human beings are quite literally inspired creatures, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. Um, and so likewise with the Bible, like it's, it's got God's life in it. It's got God's energy in it, however you want to put that, but it's not perfect. It's still actual human beings. Uh, it's still, you know, and that make mistakes and have blind spots and all that sort of stuff. So I try to read it as a very human book uh, that points me to Christ. And I feel like those are like the, the two essential things in my approach to the Bible. It's very human, but it's also essential for understanding Jesus. I love that. And I, I would say that if I still function from a theological posture of the vast majority of people they don't accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're punished throughout all eternity. All of this stuff that we're talking about would be way harder to swallow. Like, it's just so confusing. I mean, Mason, God may not have even had control over all of this. And gosh, there's violence all over the Bible, and yet God's not violent. Why wasn't it more clear? Like, if because I think a lot of people are turned off from Christianity because of the violence in the Bible in their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of God would that be? Oh, sure. Because now I do feel very much so strongly in a universal reconciliation to the creator of the universe and all things being redeemed. I can live with all of this stuff just being confusing as hell and, and all of us kind of tapping into the the spirit and our connection and, and having experience. And I do find the Bible very valuable when you look at it as a historical depiction of people interacting with God. And I do feel that there's some things that are very much so inspired, but I also think it's crazy talk for the the Bible to command of, of others uh, a meaning when you just think about translations for crying out loud. I mean, that's a, that's a big step to take to believe that the Holy Spirit arrived at the living 
Bible translation or the message or the, you know, just completely. And it's just, it, yeah. it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. But Mason, what, what about you yeah. as far as how you view the Bible and how you interact with the Bible? So I don't necessarily believe that the Bible is inspired, but I think yeah. what happens within us, what I think the Holy Spirit is leading us when we do read the Bible, that's inspired. So for example, when I read the crucifixion of Jesus, this person who uh, was a poor brown man and then was killed by the state. And then I read that story and then three miles away from me, George Floyd was killed last summer. I'm inspired by that story and the story that happened that unfolded three miles from my home that that inspires me so much that I need to fight for justice for someone like George Floyd, right? So that to me is what is inspired. It's not necessarily the literal words on the page. It's what happens within us when we read these stories and connect it to our world and our own stories. That's what's inspired. Mm, that's beautifully put, Mason. Yeah. 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 I like that a lot. And, yeah. and I, I, I always am trying to understand people that are still where I came from. And I understand that knee jerk reaction is like, if we, if we don't have this concretized foundation where all truth is, is weighed at and everything is looked at that as the standard, then what do we have to go off by? And I think it's so hard to accept we were never meant to have anything that did that for us. Mm -hmm. We just weren't. And I think that for me, Pete Enns was a huge help mm -hmm. in some of his books, like the Bible tells me so, and the sin of certainty is the Bible just can't do that. It just can't. Like you can yeah. try to make it do that, but then you're, you're having to do all sorts of mental gymnastics. And I mean, the, the seminary studies that, that I went through, they legit start the, all the studies with basically saying, look, anything that seems to be a conflict or a contradiction in the Bible, there is very concrete black and white explanations. It's just hard to find sometime. And that was the presupposition heading into all of those studies is the answers are there. And so I was taught that the Bible could reconcile anything. I was not taught how to read the Bible. What I would say now is the correct way of, of reading the Bible. And I was listening to a super interesting podcast that was of Bible for Normal People, and it was just Peter and, and Jared, the two co-hosts, and, and they talked about just when will this wake us up when we have when we see this promising young on fire for god future pastor we send him or her off to seminary and then they come back and they're like w t f like i don't even know what i believe anymore mm. because we sent them off to systematize their theology but then they're exposed to stuff that just don't line up and they don't make sense. And that that's kind of the norm. Like that's, that's the norm. Like when do we stop and say, okay, wait a second, maybe we're looking at, we're looking at things a little bit differently. So, so both of, I, I think the three of us are all on the same page. Like, do we all agree? And I think we would probably disagree with maybe what Jesus's involvement in this is or was, but do we all agree that everything will be reconciled to God 
at some day and age. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to assume that we all see the afterlife, but I still, with childlike faith, believe that that everything that we see and experience will be redeemed to a perfect place. Heaven and earth will come together. There will be a perfect existence where the things of this world are gone, evil, racism, sickness, uh, hatred, all of that death will be swallowed up. I believe that, and there's some childlike faith there. But where where do you guys land on universal reconciliation? Y'all 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 on my team mm-hmm. there or what? So sometimes you'll hear people who are maybe more conservative say like, "Well, I'm a hopeful universalist," meaning maybe they're yeah. like an annihilationist, or maybe they actually do believe in hell, but they hope that universalism is true. Well, I'm a hopeful hopeful universalist too, but I'm on the opposite sort of side of the spectrum where I'm coming from, where I'm not sure if there are these things like eternal souls or there's this sort of like a conscious being that will exist from ourselves, uh, you know, after we have died. I don't know if that exists or not, but I hope it does. I'm hopeful, a hopeful universalist in that way. And so maybe, I'm not sure, um, but I am hopeful that what you described about, you know, what the sort of the new creation, heaven or the kingdom of God looks like, that sort of um, that sort of place that we're reconciled to. I hope that exists someday, yeah. even after we die. Yeah. But so so there's not even an afterthought for you as far as considering the potential of many people suffering forever yeah. like that's yeah. that's not in your options yeah. of possibilities yeah. i just don't think it's i just don't think it's possible if god has any any amount of love it is simply not possible for something like separation and torment uh eternal torment um to exist if god has any level of love i just don't think it's yeah. a logical a logical conclusion yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, I mean, a hundred percent. It just and and I think where freedom has come for me is being okay with with being open with that. Look, it just doesn't it doesn't line up for me anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, take it a step further. A Calvinist God, <laughs> not even allowing some people to choose. Sorry, that has bullshit written all over it. And quite frankly, I don't want to follow that God that does that. Like Mm -hmm. that's not a God that I feel safe with throughout all eternity. Mm -hmm. But so how about you, Heath? Like what's your expectation of the afterlife? Yeah, I definitely, I'm glad you're hopeful, Mason. I definitely don't want to let go of that. Like I, I, I hope to God that there is a, a place and and time where we just exist forever. Super happy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> super fulfilled and just get along perfectly. And I have a weird theory that if there's a finite number of people in an infinite amount of time that we spend together, it's theoretically possible, if not probable, that we get to know every single person that ever lived really, really well. I mean, mathematically, why wouldn't we? Infinite time, finite number of people. We got forever to, to get to know everybody well. It's like one long podcast. There you go. The weird mind of Joey Svensson. But no, I think that's a possibility. I resonate with what you said, Joey, about like if, if, there, if there is a Calvinist God, like this sense of not feeling safe with this God and not wanting to be with this God. Like, you know, at the, at the end of the day, that God could exist. But if that God exists, then we're all screwed no matter what. Like right. e- even those of us that are chosen, because like if, 
if we really do live in a universe governed by God with that kind of arbitrariness and uh, punitive nature, like we're all screwed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so it, even if that God exists, I wouldn't want to be loved by that God. I wouldn't follow that God. Um, and so a God of love is the only kind of God I'm interested in worshiping or following. Um, and I resonate a lot too with what Mason said about like the hopeful universalist, not being about the universalism part so much as just the afterlife part. Like I think if there is an afterlife and there's a God of love, uh, then one way or another, uh, we're all reunited with God. Um, and that could be, you know, in my theology, I think there's room for, uh, hell in a sense, in a sense, uh, in the sense of like a, um, painful purification that might have to take Mm. place, uh, for some of us. Um, but it's, it's for the purpose of being reunited with God. It's not about punitive uh, retribution or anything like that. But I also, you know, just to be very honest, I, I really struggle with believing in an afterlife. Um, I, I hope that it's, that it's true. Um, I, I don't, here's the thing. When people say they believe in an afterlife, I don't really know how to interpret that. Like, I, I believe this wall's in front of me. And, I, you know, I believe, like, I don't know how you believe there's an afterlife. Like, how do you have certainty about that? For, for people that say they have certainty about it, I just, either my faith's not strong enough or they're not being honest or, or something. But I don't see how you can just say you believe that the way you believe there's a tree out there or something like it just, it, it requires an element of hope and trust and faith. Uh, and so we could be wrong about that. Um, and I don't think the Christian faith rests on there being an afterlife. I don't think an afterlife mm-hmm. was the point of Jesus's message and ministry. Um, but I think because he, he preached and taught a God who is love that we can trust that whatever there is, God will be for us and God will be with us. Um, yeah. Yeah. You guys are both boring then to me, but for me, it's like, if there's not like any eternal existence, it just seems to be a meaningless journey of we're here. Like, like we're literally missed here one day, gone the next. And sure. I mean, we can have, uh, I mean, our, our existence can mean something for a really long time. It just, it would be like, if, if, if God revealed to my heart, Hey, there's no afterlife, it would be definitely really hard to accept, Mm -hmm. like just really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. But I understand what y'all are saying. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm in a similar boat where, yeah, there's so much part of me where I'm like, I want to have some sort of experience with God in the same way that I experience God now, but just have that eternally. Right. And I, I sort of want that, but also there's part of me where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that's actually true. And also I think some, at sometimes there's part of me where I don't want that to happen. Like I do want my experience to be just the end of it when I die and my memory will just go on with the memory as, you know, God goes on in the world and in experiences that, you know, God will remember me, but that will be about it. And part of me wants that too. And I'm not sure. Um, so I wrestle with that, which is the reason why I say I'm a hopeful universalist. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. You know, to what you're saying though, Joey, about it kind of, if there's no afterlife that it kind of renders this life meaningless in some ways, I, I certainly get that. Um, I, th- I think for me, and I, and I may be saying it, it may sound nonchalant in the way I say it now, but I mean, I've certainly struggled a lot with it personally. And I think there was a time in which it was 
emotionally very hard for me to question the idea of an afterlife. Um, I guess where I'm at on that now is that, you know, it's, I think a lot about Ecclesiastes and, you know, when you talked about life being missed, that's the, you know, that's the word that's used there. It's often translated as meaningless. Everything's many meaningless, but uh, the Hebrew word is hevel. It means mist or fog or vapor, just mm. insubstantial. And I feel like th- that can go either way in the way we interpret it. In one sense, yes, everything's very insubstantial and meaningless objectively, but that also in some ways like enhances the preciousness of every sure. moment. Right. If, if this, if this is all there is, it, like to entertain that option for me, I feel like it's some ways psychologically healthy because it compels me to like be fully immersed as best I can, like in today uh, and in this moment. Um, and it's a weird duality because in one sense I have this sense of like, yeah, life in one sense seems very meaningless. And in another sense, it seems infinitely meaningful. And the temporality brings out both of those for me at least. Yeah. No, I like that. And I, I know we got to wrap this up here. Let's, when, when Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain, do you think that that to him was a belief in the afterlife or it meant something totally different? Cause I've always taken that to believe to live. I get to be a part of Christ's redemptive work here on this earth, teaching people how to love their enemies and serving one another and that sort of thing. But to die is better on the other side. Do you all think that's what he at least meant or at least he thought? I, I do. I, I'm, I'm convinced that Paul firmly believed in an afterlife. Yeah. Right. I, I appreciate your interpretation of that, Joey. And I also think Heath is totally, totally right too. So um, yeah. The yeah. one comment I wanted to make about kind of universal reconciliation, universalism that um, I just want to like kind of make really pointedly is that I think what is most interesting about universalism and universal reconciliation is not necessarily of does everybody go to heaven when they die? Like, I, I think that's less interesting to consider. What I think is more interesting, and and Heath was touching on this earlier when we were talking about restorative justice, is I think of universal reconciliation and universalism as this sort of ultimate restorative justice project. That there is nothing one can do to separate themselves from the love of God. God will ultimately bring them to restoration. Um, so, you know, even think of someone like Paul, you just brought up Paul, Paul literally was committing genocide for years and years and years. And even that he was universally reconciled to God because God loved Paul so much. And to think that every single human being will be able to experience God in that way where, you know, despite all their flaws, despite all the things that they may have done in the world, that God will eventually restore them how God ultimately hopes for them to be. And I think if that's the case, then we need to be treating other people in that same way. Whether somebody has committed murder, whether somebody has wronged you, whatever it might be, there are different ways where we can hold their actions accountable, but also restoring them so that they can go on in the world in healthy and wholesome ways. Um, And I think that ultimately is the most interesting thing about universalism is how do we actually have a universalism in the here and now? How do we actually live as universalism is true now? Yeah, I, that's so well. That's, that's so well put. Yeah, the idea that this vision of the future shapes the way we live in the present, and I think that's the real value of it. Because, like with a more traditional idea of eternal separation, 
I, I think it's not an accident that people that believe in that tend to be, not all, but tend to be more like judgmental and separate, you know, like countercultural, separate from the world. And like, if you believe in an eternal separation, that that shapes the way you live here and now. But if you believe in ultimate reconciliation, that, that could motivate you and inspire you to work towards that here and now with people, even though you may consider your enemies at the moment. You know? Guys, it was fun. I know one thing that if there is no afterlife, ain't none of us going to be upset about it when we die. <laughs> I know that. 